Welcome to the Empowered to Connect podcast, where we come together to discuss a healing-centered approach to engagement and well-being for ourselves, our families, and our communities. I'm J.D. Wilson, and I'm your host. And today on the show, we've got Emily Chapman Richards from Show Hope. Uh, She's the executive director there uh, for the organization that her parents uh, started so long ago. And uh, as we heard the story a few weeks ago from her parents about uh, Emily, the 10-year-old adoption advocate in the backseat of uh, her parents' car, advocating for their own family to adopt. Um, She now is uh, at the helm of an organization that is uh, both funding and advocating for and equipping um, those in the foster care and adoption journey uh, literally all over the world. And so uh, a really, really great story, great interview. You're going to love hearing uh, not just what they're doing and and what uh, what, uh, Emily has done kind of as as part of her role there, but uh, we talked through also uh, the conference coming up on Friday and just um, the scope of, of what um, kinds of things are coming out of Show Hope's work in the state of Tennessee specifically. And so uh, definitely stay tuned to hear uh, more about that. Uh, I, just a last plug, um, by the way, for the conference on Friday, the Show Hope, uh, Hope for the Journey conference is uh, going to be streaming Friday, um, April the 9th. And so if you're listening to this before Friday, April 9th, uh, there is still time to register for the conference. Uh, huge benefit of this conference this year is that not only will you see it streamed uh, Friday, April 9th, but starting at 8 a.m. You know, to 5 p.m., it also is going to be available to view uh, kind of on demand for the next uh, several months if you register. So uh, a no-brainer to register. The content is unbelievable. Um, you've got folks from the TCU Karen Purvis uh, Institute of Child Development. You've got uh, folks from Show Hope um, and then uh, voices from adoptees, from families who um, have, have gone through this journey as well. It's, it's, a, it's a fantastic day, so don't miss it. Again, Show Hope.org to register if you haven't registered already. And now, without any further delay, Emily Chapman Richards. Well, our guest today is Emily Chapman Richards from Show Hope. She's the executive director there. and we uh, are excited to have her on today for the purpose of having uh, the show Hope, Hope for the Journey Conference coming up. This will actually air the day of the Hope for the Journey Conference. And so uh, we're excited to have you, Emily. We've also got Tana Ottinger with us um, from ETC. And so uh, why don't we do this before we go um, into kind of current stuff. Emily, your parents mentioned when they were on the, on the show a few weeks ago um, you know, you as a 10 year old adoption advocate in the back seat, pushing them, making them uncomfortable, like helping them know about um, what was happening in the world of adoption and, and the needs there and all of that. So, why don't we kind of start there? We, we just talk about, you know, as, as a child, what was it that sort of brought your attention to this issue? And then, what, what was it that seemed so important for you to advocate for your family specifically? Absolutely. Well, thank you, JD and Tana. It is an honor to be on the podcast with you guys. So thanks for inviting me to be a part. And um, yes, my parents, they had a, they had a big old time with you guys. <laughs> so thank you for having them as well. Course, <laughs> fun to have them. Fun to have them. Yeah. They're, they're a hoot, those two. Um, so I can remember like earliest memories, you know, the typical, what do you want to be when you grow up? I have very early memories of always saying missionary like that was, and, and I, my parents, I mean, a lot of credit is due to the way that my parents always framed my dad's work to, to us. And genuinely. So, you know, it was really a minister of music and the sorts, um, 
my dad, as I'm sure he shared, Christian recording artist for many years, kind of a um, career in encouraging the body of Christ through music. And um, he would travel a lot as a, as a young child. And so um, it was often explained to us that, that this was dad's ministry. And we together as a family were helping that and supporting him traveling. And, and so ministry and understanding um, missions work and helping meet others' needs was very much so baked in the kind of the foundation of my childhood. And so early on, um, I have memories of doing service projects here in, in our hometown of Franklin, Tennessee. And then an opportunity arose when I was in fifth grade to apply to go on my first missions trip overseas. Um, and, and it was a trip that our youth group was taking in um, partnership with Compassion International to Haiti. And at the time, we uh, as a family were sponsoring um, a little girl. Her name's Yvonne through Compassion International in Haiti. And so it felt super tangible to me to be able to yeah. go and to meet Yvonne and be on that trip. And I applied. It was right before Christmas. And I remember all I wanted for Christmas that year was to be accepted to get to go on the trip. And awesome. I did. I was accepted. And so my mom and I went with a kind of a couple other mother-daughter duos uh, with our youth group leader um, to Haiti in the spring of 1997. And that trip really was what kind of sparked the adoption advocacy piece in my heart. Um, I was 11 at the time. And so me, and I met Yvonne, I met her friends, um, similar age as myself, and just trying at a young age to conceptualize what it would be like to live in the world without so much of the support network that I was beginning to realize I took for granted. Like I didn't realize yes. it was a gift to get to go to school. Like, you know, at 11, you're like, I have to go to school today. <laughs> no. And you're realizing, Oh, this is a, this is a gift that yeah. Um, yeah. I have this opportunity and that I know um, I'm going to be able to go somewhere after school and that's home. Mm-hmm. And there's, there's shelter and there's nurture and there's support there. Um, yeah. So all these pieces were coming together, came home from that trip um, in fact, I have a journal. I keep it in my office here at Show Hope that I kept on that trip um, and wrote wow. on the first page how excited I was. And I hope this experience changes my life and maybe someone else's too. Um, and that those were the words that uh, mm-hmm. kind of sent me on that trip. And I came home holding in my heart and mm-hmm. tried to convince my parents to become missionaries coming out of that trip. And, you know, <laughs> so your job dad, as a child, like your job was just to constantly make your parents feel like they weren't enough. Right. Like, right. <laughs> like, you know, that calling, can we, can we raise the bar a little higher? Up that Annie, up that Annie. The music is fine, dad, but like, what are you really doing? <laughs> yeah, right. What do you do with your life? Yeah. And so I, it, it, and quickly that, my parents helped explain that that wasn't realistic for our family at that moment in time, but perhaps that's something that would be in my future um, as far as when I grew up and we're looking at career. But there was a mother-daughter duo on the trip, um, dear family friends, uh, Dan and Terry Coley. Dan's been on the podcast before with you guys. So Terry, his wife and daughter that was my age, at the, uh, uh, Carrie, um, one of their daughters that's my age, were on that trip. And they were in the process of adopting. Um, and, and we had, my parents were in a small group with them, so grew up around foster care and adoption. And so I like to say I changed tactics when I realized we weren't going to get, <laughs> we weren't going to become missionaries. I was like, okay, well, I have another idea. What, there are, you know, thousands of children around the world and here within our own, um, within our own nation that need, um, permanency that need family and, um, are really lacking that most kind of fundamental 
need of the love and security of a permanent family. So could we, let's be curious about, um, could we open our home and our hearts to a child um, that is in need of a family? And my parents were not open to that idea at the beginning. They were supportive, of course, and had walked very closely with the Coley's and other families and in our church family. But for us and just the busyness of my dad's career and what that demanded of our family, it just didn't seem plausible or feasible. And so I went on a letter writing campaign and a prayer <laughs> campaign. So I figured out other ways to up the ante. In fact, I asked for a meeting with my pastor at the time, our pastor, Scotty Smith, who's now a board member of, of us uh, here at Show Hope, which is okay. so fun to see just so full circle. Pastor Scotty, I don't understand. In John 15, it talks about asking in the Lord's will and it shall be given to you. And I'm asking for what I think is a good thing. Like our family should consider adopting, providing a home for a child in need. And my parents aren't on the same page as me. And very graciously and kindly kind of corrected me and said, well, it's clear what your will is, but I don't know. We need to pray for the Lord's will to be done here. And, um, and uh, you know, I, I joke about this, but I, I, I really am serious. I kind of wish I could recover my prayer life from when I was 11 and 12 and 13, because there yeah. was such innocence, but yet like bold faith of something is stern, something is happening here. And I'm just going to continue to lean in um, and pray for that. And it was certainly not me. It was something beyond me that was going on. And um, yeah, through a series of really, crazy events or coincidences or working, you know, as, as believers and and Christians um, certainly believe that the Lord was moving in those kind of couple of years, my parents, um, yeah, came around (laughs) and ended up, we uh, started the intercountry adoption process and welcomed Shoei home in 2000 from China and then Stevie Joy in 2003 and Maria in 2004. So I have two biological brothers and uh, three sisters that came home through adoption from China. Awesome. That's awesome. Um, and when you guys were, so Show Hope is, is starting to get started around that time. And, you know, as the work is getting started, where, what, because I'm trying to do my own math, I guess, but like you must've been around college or so as it's starting to get going. And, and what was the process of you then kind of maybe being like, Hey, next step, mom and dad is like, I want you to let me run this thing. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I wasn't that prescriptive with, with the show hope. I'll say that I was prescriptive yeah. with the adoption process. Yeah. Um, yeah. Oh my goodness sakes. Well, the so show hope was founded in 2003 formally kind of, um, Uh, that's when our 501c3 status came through before that. So really show hope the beginnings, the Genesis was our experience bringing Shoei home in 2000. And um, we had the opportunity to travel to China together as a family and even um, visit her social welfare Institute where she came from um, in China. And when we got home from that trip, we hadn't even made it to the car. And so many families had approached my parents and said, man, we have the room in our heart and our homes we just don't have the money in the bank account. It's six, the the inner country adoption process is very expensive, yeah. and it can range, you know, twenty five to fifty five thousand dollars, and yeah. just to complete the process. And then we know a lot of these children that come home, particularly through inner country adoption, and I think the statistics eighty percent coming home through inner country adoption have some sort of diagnosed special needs. We know all children impacted by adverse childhood experiences have additional unique needs that yeah. that need to be yeah. met, and so that's a lot to consider taking on 
And then to know there's this big financial burden to totally. eat or, you know, hurdle to even get over to, to begin your journey as a family yeah. is a lot for, for couples considering kind of taking that step. And so mom and dad began just kind of personally supporting adoptive families in the early 2000s, 2003. I graduated high school in 2004. So it was all during high school. And I remember my parents sitting down very clearly. And the dream was like, all right, guys, do you, we have this, we feel like God's kind of leading us to use dad's platform to raise awareness and advocate for adoption and foster care. Um, we would really love to be able to help a hundred families with adoption aid grants and reduce that financial barrier to adoption. And so we're considering, you know, we, we have a, there's a fund right now that was part of an agency, but we're considering that becoming a 501c3 so we can help families more broadly. Um, what do you guys think? It's like, yes, let's go for it. My, in high school, I believe it was my senior year. We were at Disney world for my dad was doing an event for, for some around Christmas. And that was the first time we met a family. I will never forget it. This family, like beelines across like magic kingdom and they stop us. And that wasn't odd to be stopped. If somebody recognized dad, but they were like, show hope, show hope. And we're like, how do you know about at the time show Hannah's hope named after my first sister. How do you know about showing this hope? We got an adoption aid grant. And it was the first family that we didn't know or somebody knew them and had recommended them to apply for yeah. adoption aid grant. And at that point in time, realized this might be a little bit bigger than helping 100 families. And so we've just recently surpassed. Um, we are have awarded more than 6,800 adoption aid grants to help um, children come home wow. through uh, adoption. And um, it's pretty unbelievable. So I go off to college. I've written all my speeches in high school. Uh, in fact, I found one recently in paperwork on um, supporting birth parents, making adoption placement plans. Okay. Um, so I, I wrote that in high school. All my research papers in college were focused on adoption advocacy, a lot um, on China and um, policies in China and sort of how that, that has led to, in the early 2000s, a lot of children needing to find their way into families through adoption. Um, so I always have just remained passionate about this issue. And so finished international studies major, religion minor, my undergrad, um, and knew then that I wanted to be a part of the kind of nonprofit world. And there was a position open at Show Hope when I graduated for um, international programs manager at that time. We were doing work kind of in country in China. And so I had the opportunity to to join the staff and have been a part ever since. So no, awesome. no thought that the executive director <laughs> position would be in the future, but certainly an involvement with the yeah. work. Yeah. And that's awesome. Emily, would you mind telling a little bit about um, maybe the genesis of both? I mean, you can take it maybe from an organizational perspective or even just your personal journey if you want to around the integration of sort of moving into knowing we needed to provide trauma-informed services and care. So I know y'all were sort of subsidizing some adoptions with, through the adoption aid grant. And then I know there was sort of a moment in time when your organization thought, and now we need to do some post-placement support. And so can you talk to us a little bit about that? Absolutely. So the the mission of Show Hope, um, our mission is to care for orphans by engaging the church and reducing barriers to adoption. And uh, the genesis of Show Hope was really out of a desire to reduce the financial barrier to the adoption process. And so 
you know, you don't, you don't know all the time what path you set out on when you start on a journey. Right. And so our, our starting point are like, you know, whatever the green square in Candyland where you start <laughs> was, <laughs> Hey, can we reduce that financial barrier to just the adoption process? So families can complete the process. Um, and we continue to do that today as we journeyed further in wanting to not only support adoption, but support adoption done well. And, and really our desire always from the beginning, this comes from my parents as the founders in their heart is to just go deeper, 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 deeper with families, um, as opposed to wider, wider, wider in our work. And so, um, 2003 shows begins, we're reducing the financial barrier, um, Shortly therein, we realized that a lot of children, um, especially coming home through intercountry adoption, had significant medical needs. And so was there a way to address that medical barrier um, and reduce that medical barrier? And so for the for the last uh, 12 to 15 years, we've been involved um, in, in, in country support work of a, um, a network of therapeutic care centers in central China. We had to exit that work um, in the summer of 2020. Uh, but for for a significant period of our organizational history, we um, helped provide therapeutic care for over 2,700 children that had significant needs in China. Um, we know 819 of those children um, went on to uh, be adopted um, and, and probably more, but we just only know those stories once those families kind of find us and make the connection that their child was helped through the work of Show Hope. So that's 2006 you know, or so we begin supporting, yes, so I'm going to just take a quick little, like, personalize oh, that work yeah. real quick. And I don't mind yeah. sharing. I don't always share a ton about our kids. But just for the sake of our listeners, two of our children were in care centers in China that were being provided for and taken care of through the support of Show Hope. So the, the work of Show Hope in country providing that support for kiddos with specifically with medical needs, is incredibly personal to the Ottinger family. So two of our loves were cared for, loved, provided for, had surgeries, advocated for by Show Hope, found by the Ottingers, and will forever be, you know, just part of our family. So I'll just take a minute and say thank you for that legacy of work that Show Hope did there. Um, so anyway, okay, you can carry on. Just wanted the audience thank to you. like, oh. The Ottinger family's babies that were there just being loved on. And, you know, I will say, because I think I sort of, I can, you know, a little bit guess, Emily, where the conversation's about to go. So I will just take a second to say something, a plug, and then we can kind of move on with the storyline. But it was evident having, you know, our family has grown six times over through adoption specifically, and all of our kids have unique stories and histories and experiences. Um, and we've worked and served tons, thousands of families who've adopted and um, brought children into their home through foster care. And um, you could tell our kids were well cared for. Like there was just a sense there of like secure care. So even knowing some of the ways that y'all were advocating for in-country care and training and support with the people on the ground actually providing um, that physical and emotional support to the kids, like it was incredibly evident to us when we traveled over there to pick our kiddos up, um, that there had been something really special happening. So that's the Ottinger plug. Okay, didn't mean to interrupt, friend. Carry on. Yes. Oh, no, yeah. no. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you for sharing that. So so we we are really thankful for our history of being able to, to address that medical barrier through our work um, in China. We, as we began to transition out of that work, we still desire to meet that um, 
medical need to help address that medical barrier. And so we've recently launched our medical uh, medical care grants program, which I'm excited. I'll share more about that in a minute. But we continue to go deep in that work of um, offering support to families that have brought children home that have ongoing health care needs and helping address um, address the expenses associated there. As we continue to journey, so 2003, we start. Around 2006, we begin the work in country in China. Around 2008, we realize, um, oh my goodness, <laughs> these children that are coming home have significant needs. The work of Dr. We we are introduced to the work of Drs. Karen Purvis and Dr. Cross. We begin to really realize and conceptualize trauma's impact on children, whether that be abuse, neglect early institutionalization for many of our children that come home through in a country adoption. And we have to do more than just championing and, and being the cheerleaders for um, recognizing that children need to belong in a family and you should, con- you know, consider adoption um, to, we really want to support these families done well, you know, adoption done well. And so that's really where trauma informed care kind of came on the radar. <clears throat> the very early stages, what that looked like was we revamped our, adoption aid application to ask questions about of the family to just try and make families aware. Are you Have you read The Connected Child by Dr. Purvis and Dr. Cross? Are you aware of trauma-informed care? Has your agency been talking to you about this? Um, so it's really a support uh, organization. We're not the front lines like an agency is. And so um, we then began to scholarship and train professionals, primarily social workers and counselors across the nation and now have had the opportunity scholarship around the world uh, to receive formal training in trust-based relational intervention. So over 1,100 professionals that have received scholarships from Show Hope trained in TBRI to kind of be in communities across across the United States and now even broad to support families with children in their communities that have these ongoing needs. Um, and then, of course, uh, that led into um, beginning the what was formerly the Empowered to Connect conference and launching now as the Hope for the Journey Conference, really to serve as a megaphone, that there are resources and practical and proven tools out there so that parents can journey well and caregivers can journey well, helping meet the needs of their children um, and their families or communities that have been impacted by adoption and foster care and these early adverse childhood experiences. I mean, that's a lot. And like, I remember, <laughs> oh, J.D., you want to go? Well, I was going to say, it, it is. I mean, the it's a lot that's happened. And I know that as it's happening, you know, you're just kind of taking the next right step at a time, but it's, um, it's really exciting to kind of hear the entire, um, the entire kind of arc of it and to know kind of where you guys are at now. Um, Tana, why don't you go ahead and then I'll, I'll follow up in a few minutes. Yeah. I, I think I was just struck by like hearing, you know, show hope story so succinctly, Emily, like taking the time to like sit down and really think about it and sort of this linear, I know it didn't always probably feel linear as it was happening, but I was struck with um, just the willingness to sort of grow as an organization and and change and learn. And I feel like it just, I mean, not, please forgive me for seeming to make it be about myself. It feels so personal. I think, I think sort of the journey of Show Hope just for Mo and I both, like feels like such a personal connection mm-hmm. to y'all's work and to our own story. I mean, we started the adoption process in about 1999, 2000. That's right when we started our journey to becoming parents. And so thinking about, um, you know, just that first pull to growing our family through adoption. And then it was um, 
done with like the purest of motives and the deepest of longing and heart and just completely naive, like just (laughs) so naive to like what we would need, what our kiddos would need. I mean, um, no, no regrets in terms of like moving forward, but like we didn't know what we were doing and we had to grow. And I feel like I can just so deeply respect the way I have watched show hope as an organization learn and go, okay, now let's add in this other layer of support that we, that we understand is now needed. Now let's add in this next layer. And so I just feel so grateful first to know you and then to sort of bear witness, I think, Mm -hmm. to the organizational growth and trajectory of like stepping into the next right thing, which is sometimes all we can do. We can sort of wake up to something and step into the next right thing. Um, So it's thanks for sharing it succinctly, and I'm so grateful. I'm just grateful to to bear witness to the beautiful way y'all are continuing to serve families. Well, we thank yeah. you. Thanks. Yeah. I mean, we certainly, ha- yeah. You look back right on your early or self and your early years yeah. of work, and you're like, that you know, there was a day <laughs> when, and maybe my parents shared this when they were with you guys a couple weeks ago. There was a day where my dad would certainly have stood on a stage and said. All of you in this audience, it, you know, if you call yourself a, a Christian and, and James 127, you know, says very clearly uh, to pure religion is to care for orphans and widows in their distress and keep oneself unstained from the world. You, what, you've got to respond to this biblical mandate and, and everyone should consider adoption. Okay, no, we know better, right? Like everyone should consider, everyone is called to support. Absolutely. And yeah. we believe that. And we believe yeah. that is from buying fidgets for the preschool classroom so that yeah. mama bear whose budget is a hundred dollars for the year doesn't have to buy the bouncy balls for the kiddos yeah. to considering open, opening your home to foster care adoption to bringing a hot meal, respite care, CASA. I mean, all the things we could go on and on, right? Like we understand it's much more broader, but we, you know, you, you hope that you journey with humility and understanding that you do, you, it's always the purest intent to take the next right step and also subject yourself with all humility to learning how to do better and to go deeper with these families, because there are a lot of families. And I think that's what you know, normalizing what can feel really isolating and yes. challenging in the adoption journey. Um, I am not an adoptive parent myself. I'm an adoptive sibling and I take that role very seriously. And I try as best as I can um, to be as meaningfully present with my sisters um, because I think that that is a unique role that I can play and needed in their yeah. story. Um and so that's not, my role isn't adoptive mama, but my role is different, adoptive sibling or advocate or, you know, these different ones. And it takes all of us um, being willing to do, to do better and look at our own, like mm-hmm. the own parts of our own heart that need to be addressed. Like there yeah. are conversations certainly in today, you know, mm-hmm. current history that are happening with a very different lens around the dinner table because, we're a transracial family built through the beauty of adoption. Like what, okay, what do right. we do with this? Right. And like, how do we do this? Well, and what does this demand of me in this conversation and how can I be more empathetic or understanding? And that's, that changes 
everything. History, certainly a family's history. Like totally. it changes things. It's that's like yeah. molding. It's molding my children. It's mold generations of a family. And that's a beautiful thing, but it's, I mean, you talk about getting in some deep waters, like you got to navigate this. Right. Um, so, well, I think along those lines of, of show hope evolving and just in general, like as we see opportunity, like having the, the courage to sort of explore what, what it would look like to, meet those needs of, of different opportunities pop up. Um, I would love for the two of you to talk for a few minutes just about the, the, so here in Tennessee, um, there's a statewide collaborative that's been happening, um, with show hope and ETC as part of it. Um, and so it's pretty exciting. And the reason I would love for us to talk about it, I know that most of you listening are in are other places besides Tennessee, but, um, if you think about, the challenges on a statewide or a nationwide level to addressing um, state-sponsored childcare, uh, it is just, it's staggering. And so um, I would love for us to talk for a few minutes about Tennessee Fosters Hope Initiative and kind of what each organization's role has been in that and just kind kind of the structure of it, just from a from a standpoint, there might be somebody listening who's got some influence somewhere and has never thought about something in this manner where they are. And so we'd love to just kind of highlight that for a minute if we could. Absolutely. Well, thank you for drawing attention to Tennessee Foster's Hope. Um, it has been an exciting uh, couple of weeks recently and just kind of formally announcing and publicly announcing the launch of Tennessee Foster's Hope. You know, I remember, and Tana, you can probably attest to this as well, just early conversations with our friends at the Karen Purvis Institute of Child Development and um, for many years in the Empower to Connect conference, and we'll talk about it and hope for the journey. When you really, we all desire, I think, systematic change, mm-hmm. like across the board for our children that have been impacted by adoption and foster care. And when you look at that kind of model um, of change that is needed with the child in the middle. It's all the systems that touched that even bumper car up against the life of a child, even if it's a momentary interaction, all of those systems need um, introspection and finding space in their own way of doing things to better support um, children and families impacted by adoption and foster care. And so where Show Hope is uniquely placed and where this comes into play with Tennessee Foster's Hope is um, we have a unique kind of voice into the faith community and believe that there is um, a lot of exciting exploration and change that can happen within our churches and houses of worship to support what DCS is doing, what um, different state agencies are doing with the understanding now of adverse childhood experiences, Mm -hmm. um, traumas impact on body, brain, belief, behavior. We, we, we know better. And so we can do better. Right. And so what Tennessee fosters hope is it's, it's um, an initiative out of our governor's office in collaboration with um, the governor's office of faith-based and community initiatives Um, Tennessee's Department of Children's Services and our commissioner, Jennifer Nichols, has been incredibly um, willing to give of her time and support of this initiative. Tennessee Kids Belong, um, which just does incredible work in our state and part of the America's Kids Belong kind of network across our nation. Show hope and support from Mark and Tana and the work of Empowered to Connect to build a statewide collaborative network um, of community impact partners, churches, houses of worship, 
to partner well with local regional DCS offices to help meet the needs of foster adoptive parents in, in those communities, recognizing that the needs will be different even across our own state. So you take that obviously nationally and in other countries for those listeners, the needs will be unique to your kind of context. And so we're trying to like replicate that, I think, in Tennessee Foster's Hope and recognize like how do we engage as community leaders and help resource and, and meet needs to really truly address um, the children that are in the foster care system here in the state of Tennessee and moving those children toward permanency in a way that obviously um, maintains and elevates best interests of the child. Um, right. And so I don't know, Tana, what, what would you like to add? You know, it, I was in a conversation yesterday and we were sort of talking about how it's, how important it is to think about work both in a micro and a, with a micro lens and a macro lens. And I really think about systemic change and like best practice for children and families. And it's, it's almost imperative as organizations and for advocates to sort of keep both of those to the best of our ability, both of those lenses on at the same time. Hmm. So what do we need to be doing at the micro level, all the way down to individual and family, all the way up to that macro level of policy? Mm-hmm. And so at uh, the work of at, at ETC, one of the models that we sort of look at as we filter through our work and set our vision and think about our strategic plan and the decisions we're making is we use the um, social ecological model of public health, which actually is like concentric circles that start with individual and goes like individual, organizational, community, and policy. And that helps us frame up, like if we are not keeping in mind the ground level, bottom floor work that's happening at the individual level, we're missing the boat. Right. Totally. If we don't think about what's happening at the public policy level, we're missing the boat. Policy, I mean, it's 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 hard work up there at the top. Like, it's hard work. But right. you know, public policy does impact people. Like, that's actually the oh, whole yeah. role of policy. Yeah. And so, we sort well, of and, talk about yeah practice and policy and them going hand in hand. What were we saying, Emily? Go ahead. Yeah. Well, half the battle is awareness. You know, totally. and even at a policy level, like, and yeah. I think that's something that's like we have to really celebrate. And and for those that are listening outside of the state of Tennessee, like when a, a leader really does shine a light on child welfare issues, it, it is such a moment to celebrate because it isn't yes. often, it is a heat for those of us talking right here. This is like our world. We love child welfare. Right. is like, yes, like we love it. Right. We advocate. We want to see reform. These are, these are babies. We want to see the best possible outcome and future for them. It's not often, it doesn't often get the spotlight. Right. And, um, and so first and foremost, I'm just very thankful for the leadership, but just to raise awareness that there, we can do better around child welfare. And that's not pointing a finger anywhere. That's saying we can do better collaborating. We can do better coming to the table around our children. They deserve it. They deserve our best efforts and our hard work, policy, individual, let all of it, you know, feeding, feeding to each other. And I think one hallmark of Tennessee Foster's Hope that Tana, you have just been an incredible support in, and I think Empowered to Connect is set up so well to just leave, really lead the state of Tennessee in this, um, 
is the trauma competency piece and understanding not only advocating for child welfare reform, DCS is doing great work in helping prepare mm-hmm. families that are um, considering opening their home to impacts of trauma and how we can just be mindful and then work creatively with our children to address parts of our own story and help yes. them also find hope and healing in our homes. Um, but to really highlight that at like the fact that our governor's talking about trauma competency, like that's a huge move um, just to hear those words, because that means when we talk about a trauma informed continuum, you know, we're going to go from trauma aware, um, trauma sensitive, trauma responsive, trauma informed, just to have that as part of a conversation coming um, from that level of leadership is a, is a really, that helps. It's like the, that saying what rising tides lift all boats higher. Like that just helps make the, the lifting that's already heavy. And it should be, this is weighty stuff. We're talking about children and their well being. right? Makes it a little tiny bit easier because we all, we all can get there on the same page. Like, okay, we need to be mindful in our tone of voice. We need to be aware of how, um, I'm an, I'm an expressive speaker and I'm, I'm big. Well, if I have somebody in the room that has a, that has a history where big hand movements weren't helpful and were hurtful, I, can I be aware of that when I'm presenting and talking? I can be, but not if I don't know to be, (laughs) you know? And so that's, I think what's so I'm very excited about and hopeful that we could see replicated in other communities and other States and around the world of just an awareness, um, I mean, Mo and I were talking just a couple of days ago about just the dreams that we would have had, you know, 15 years ago when we were looking for support for our family and, and just couldn't find anybody. We didn't understand what was happening in our family. We couldn't find anybody else that understood what was happening in our family. And we started running for resources and looking for support and help and, you know, insert then everything. Like that's when we found Empowered to Connect and Dr. Purvis's work and trust-based relational intervention. And, you know, there was paradigm shifting going all over the place and our family and ourselves and like the way we were doing our parenting. I mean, everything started shifting. And then you start thinking about like organizational change, which is kind of what I was hinting at earlier with you guys, Emily, and it's been such a joy to watch. Just your organizational growth mindset of like, what does it mean as an organization to continue to grow and understand and then respond and, and change? Mm-hmm. Then Tennessee fosters hope if we just want to use it in that context. Like, um, so grateful to sort of be at this moment and look across the state and say, there are so many people doing really beautiful, important, conscientious, thoughtful, informed work in their communities beautifully well. Um, we, you know, by no means do we have the corner on the market of that. Like there are so, we have so much to learn. Right. So what is this like collective ingenuity, this collective work? What does it mean to sort of come together and collaborate? Um, like with humility and a desire to keep growing and that accountability that sort of happens organizationally, when you come together and you say, what does it mean for us to learn from one another and and do this work in partnership? And so um, I'm just excited to sort of see what happens next and celebrate, um, you know, just get get to work, just get to work, (laughs) do do the business that needs to be done. Yeah. Well, you know, when I think about the, the benefits of it happening well here, 
yes, our families benefit. Yes, our communities benefit. Um, eventually, the state benefits. And cyclically, when that can retain, you know, some some momentum over the years, you start talking about generations within the state um, benefiting from it. Uh, and that's exciting here, but when it's proven here, everybody talks to each other, right? So other states are going to start looking at numbers dropping and trends changing and asking what's happening. And when the model isn't built off of a few superhero uh, personalities that are driving change and they see, oh, well, there's organizations like that here that we could use to to work here. And then we can call and figure out how did it work there. And um, because, you know, a state like Tennessee does almost completely run the gamut of environments um, that you could look at and test cases for other communities around the country. And so, um, and so I, that's, that's what makes it really exciting is to know that this is a, it's a good pioneering work to be happening so that um, as other places um, begin to take notice, there's a little bit of traction to say, well, here's how it worked here. Hey, watch out for this. You know, let us help you with this here. You know, and so I, I that's why I started getting excited about it. Um yeah. And JD, to that point, I mean, early, very early Tennessee Foster's Hope conversations were conversations mm-hmm. making connections where with other states that have seen great yep. Louisiana, um, the the um, secretary of their Department of Health um, and, and Children's Services was very generous, uh, Secretary Walters, with her time to have a conversation with leadership here. And how how did it work and what what? could be uniquely Tennessee in what they, in, yeah. in, in picking up pieces of what could work here. It's not, I think there's parts that can be modeled out. And then there's also parts where and, and God gives creativity, right? And, and so to put our expertise and passion to our unique kind of communities and, and even cultures and how this looks. Um, but we definitely pulled from expertise of where e- conversations with, um, some people that were part of, of uh, governorship and some changes that happened in Kentucky and what worked and what did all of those kind of pulling those pieces and learning from others. I mean, ultimately want what's best for kiddos. And so we can, you know, I think we can all agree to check our egos a little bit at the door while also holding, you know, your, your mission, you know, yeah. is so important, but you check, you check that out the door and go, okay, what can we learn and how can that look here yeah. in, in our community? Um, and that's been really that has been the model for Tennessee Foster's mm-hmm. Hope and I'm hopeful moving forward can be mm-hmm. the model elsewhere. That's awesome. I mean, I, that that was kind of my, I was going to the same place you were, Emily, in my mind, you know, just on a call yesterday with people from four or five different states, all just thinking about how can we sort of elevate even just TBRI across the state and how do we do that um, collaboratively and thoughtfully. Um, something else that sort of came into my mind, JD, when you were talking about how it will even look different across the state of Tennessee. Um, Emily, we talked about this, I think maybe yesterday or even the day before about the different communities in Tennessee and how each one of the communities uniquely has a different set of needs. And so what does it mean to sort of do work in a community and be conscientious about the actual needs in that community without assumption or presumption, how do you sort of assess the needs individually in a community? And it really is sort of this bottom-up work of discovering what they need. Emily, do you have any more thoughts about that or some, yeah, feedback? Yeah. No, I mean, I think that that is what, that, you know, early conversations were, how, how do we build on 
I mean, highlighting child welfare hasn't completely been off the radar in the state of Tennessee, right? Like the, there was, there have been totally, efforts yeah. um, to focus in the past. And so how do we, what worked, what didn't work? And even the humility to enter that conversation uh, to say like, okay, how can we make, how can we make efforts better? And I think Tana, you hit the nail on the head of, and JD, you said earlier, Tennessee runs the gamut, you know, from, mm-hmm from West to East. And there, even for me, and it's been such a learning process to recognize like families that we need to recruit to support, um, foster care children and DCS efforts in East Tennessee, really different than middle Tennessee, really different than West Tennessee. So there's like not one blanket, like there can be an overarching goal, but like that, the embodiment of that goal is going to look really different in each community. And, and there are partner organizations that come out of the woodworks that are uniquely part of that community and know how to speak the language and meet those needs. And so it's not even, it's not reinventing the wheel as much as being like, um, here, here, I had a friend share, like, if we could just all, we're all like speedboats, but if we could all put our motor and turn it the same way, then we're like all run, we're all going fast, the same direction versus like, wait, we don't, we don't, we don't, you know, we're kind of all over the lake, like, nope, we're, we're headed this way. And that's what the governor raising awareness to this issue and the organizations coming to the table collaboratively, those engines get put in place, all go in the same direction. And we move, we move quicker. We don't solve the issue. We can't, we, we, I don't think this side of eternity, will it all be buttoned up and fixed forever? It, it, and, and, yeah. As the fixer in me is like, but no, it, I, it will be. I think yeah. we have to set our expectations realistically, but we certainly do better by our children, absolutely. And that's what this is. Yeah. Well, I would be remiss if we did, if we ended the episode without talking about the actual conference that is, uh, yeah. that is yes. starting today. And for many of you listening, you, it might have already started. You might have already attended. That's why you are listening now. Um, Emily, why don't you tell us about, you know, what, what's unique about this year that you're excited about? Um, you know, what's unique about this year is that, you know, 2020 ruined everything. And so it's not in person and it's, you know, it's a different format than you had planned, but, um, maybe I know you've just finished watching all of the talks through and, um, and you're, you were said you were a wreck before you started. Why, why don't you sort of, you know, for people who are on the fence of whether or not they should attend, talk about some of the uniqueness this year that there would be a reason they should, they should jump in. Absolutely. Well, we are, we are so excited to present, the Hope for the Journey Conference certainly couldn't do it without um, the incredible support of you guys and Power to Connect and um, our friends at the Karen Purvis Institute of Child Development. Um, the conference, what is different this year than the conference in years past? We've taken what historically has been two days of content and put it, boiled it down into one day of content. Um, and yes, you're right, COVID precluded us from um, having a big live event, um, but in, in some sense, it gave us the ability to uh, sort of leverage some pre-recorded video content and stories to really succinctly um, communicate the message. We realized parents um, run the gamut of, of so so busy, and, and really our target audience with this conference is 
parents and caregivers meeting the everyday needs of children impacted by adoption and foster care. We want these parents to come and receive practical and and helpful tools. Um, And and we're really thankful to be joined by Darren Jones and Amanda Purvis from the Karen Purvis Institute of Child Development to really give that meat of an introduction to trust-based relational intervention and unpack the three core principles of TBRI, empowering, connecting, and correcting. Um, And then we've introduced a new fifth module this year as a faith-based organization, feeling a certain commitment and call to really resource the church and believe that the local church is such an instrument of change in communities. Uh, We're introduced a fifth teaching module this year, TBRI and the gospel we're really excited about. Um, And that will be the fifth module in the conference. Um, You mentioned I've, I've been reviewing videos and stories that will be part of the conference this year. So in addition to the teaching from, from Darren and Amanda at the Institute, we are incorporating in each of the teaching modules um, a story, just a story from an adult adoptee or foster youth alum, as well as a foster adoptive family, and really just hope parents and caregivers see themselves or see their children in yeah, these stories yeah. and just... Um, don't gloss over the hard, like hold the heart of our stories with hope, with hopeful hands. And um, that I think is, I am really prayerful. I know our team is here as well as you guys and um, a, and a lot of people that have poured heart and soul into um, hopefully really filling up parents' cups and, and giving them hope for what we know can be a really difficult journey, but believe yeah. is really worth it. Yeah. Oh, I'm looking forward to it so much. Um, I know that, I mean, our, for, just for my wife and I, our, our first uh, real, like, you can do this moment um, came as we were eating lunch day two of the conference a few years ago. And uh, there, there is something, you can read books, you can listen to podcasts, you can consume content. Everybody obviously learns in different ways, but for us to, to be... Uh, a way to be out of the house for our um, mm. the express purpose of us sitting together and going all in, trying to um, do what's best for our kids. Um, we were able to consume the content in a different way. And so I'm hopeful for, for those that are attending this year to get uh, a similar experience, but to have this uh, you know, mixture of, of heartstring moments of hearing um, stories right. of healing and hope. And then uh, just the practical moments. Like, I mean, Darren getting up to speak like this, he, he got going and I mean, I didn't have enough pages in my notebook. Like I was, I was right. like, couldn't write fast enough to keep up. And so, um, there's going to be a lot of obviously a really solid teaching content. Um, and also just moments of, rem- of remembering, um, just the beauty and the, uh, tragedy and the, um, just the all, all encompassing human, um, element of, um, of this work. And so, uh, we're really grateful for y'all putting it on for, for having us be a part of it. And, um, thank you. Thank you. And we're hopeful, you know, we want, we want it to be a resource for the local church. So we try to make it as, as easy for organizations and churches to host and, and, and get your workbooks and, and try to, we have tons of promotional resources online that have already been created flyers. You just print and write what time you're hosting it for, for those that are precluded and, and aren't, safe yet to, to, to be together safely. We have an individual household registration option online this year, which is new um, to kind of have a formal way of just watching in the comfort of your own home, which we're really yeah. excited about. Um, it'll premiere today, April 9th, but available through um, 
uh, through the end of May. We have an extended viewing window. So there's ample time to consume the content and would love, 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 love for anyone and everyone to check it out. We do believe it is a um, helpful and hopeful resource. Totally. I will give a shameless plug. Like if you are listening and you haven't decided to to join or don't have a way and it's well within your means at all, I would say just take a minute, figure it out, make it happen, get the content at the conference. I mean, there is literally nothing more hopeful and healing and energizing than having an opportunity to feel seen and understood while simultaneously be, get, be given hope and tools and strategies. Like um, we used to kind of use the phrase real hope a lot around the ETC world. And it's because the real part is like, let's actually talk about what's really happening. Yeah. yeah. And, and, but let's, if we, if we only stay in real and we don't talk about hope, then we're often despondent and despairing. Uh-huh. Wow. And if we yeah. don't talk about the real and all we talk about the hope is this we're sort of left in fairytale land just discouraged because it isn't going how we thought it would go. So the thing I love so much about Hope for the Journey is it is this like beautiful balance of understanding the realities of what's happening in your brain and body and beliefs and behavior with like tangible, hopeful strategies for change and growth. Right. And so it is just like the culmination of all the good stuff. Right. Like in a succinct way, consumable. So I am high-fiving, fanning, you know, do it, please. Yes. It's shameless. We don't, we can't, we cannot do it alone. And uh, we choose not to do the conference alone because we don't think you can do the adoption journey and foster care journey alone. And so it's, it is incredible support from you guys at Empower to Connect, incredible support from, um, our friends at the Karen Purvis Institute of Child Development at TCU. Um, and so we're just thankful to be a part and do do yeah. encourage anyone and everyone to check it out. We do believe that um, that you will leave with your heart, your heart full. Agreed. Thank yeah. you, Emily, for being with us. Yeah. Sweet Thank friend. You. It was just a joy to have you. Yeah. This has been great. Well, great stuff from Emily there, and uh, just a, there's a ton happening through Show Hope, and so we're really grateful for uh, the you know, partnership we've got with them and the work that we've been able to do together on both this statewide Tennessee initiative as well as uh, just being able to get uh, information and equipping um, to parents who are uh, starting out in this journey. Uh, one special plug as we leave today, Friday, we are going to drop a special episode uh, that is going to be... Um, an interview, a phone call we did with uh, several other families in all different stages of life and in different backgrounds um, who are, are coming together to talk about what it was like starting out on this journey of parenting in a connected manner. And so um, if you've been down this road before, you know, you go to a conference, you read a book, you hear a certain episode of your favorite podcast, wink, wink, and then you immediately get home and uh, begin to see that it's not quite as simple as just listening to a podcast podcast or going to a conference or reading a book and then becoming a perfect parent. And so um, so one of the things that we did was we put together uh, several families who uh, are in, again, varying stages of life now and, and varying stages and issues of parenting. And we just had them talk about uh, what were some of the things that you noticed starting out that uh, that 
that you would love to pass on to parents that are just now starting off in their journey. Um, so that's about those things. We talked about uh, a lot of different things as it pertain to um, the early days and early stages of uh, learning to parent in this manner. And so uh, we do hope that you love it. That's going to be dropping during the day on Friday, April 9th. And so be looking out for that as well. For Kyle Wright, who edits and engineers our uh, audio. For Tad Jewett, who created all the sweet music that you hear every single week on the ETC podcast. And for everybody at Empowered to Connect, uh, I am J.D. Wilson, and we will see you next week on the Empowered to Connect podcast.